So excited today about this message, and in preparation for this message, I found myself very quickly realizing that Ephesians chapter 5 is very difficult to try to cram into one sermon. My original intention was to go all the way down to verse 33, and if you guys know me by now, you know that that was a vain and futile endeavor because there's too much here for each individual role, wife, uh, husband, and then later, as we'll see, child and parent. We're going to continue on with that as well as we continue our uh, series of messages that are meant to be very practical. Namely, they are entitled God and You, and so we've posited something there that will uh, sort of take us down a certain topic, and we can discuss it and study it in light of God's Word, and we are on the subject of marriage. Uh, A lot of churches do sermon series on marriage and all of that, and usually that is all geared towards trying to grow the church. Uh, I have no interest in doing any of that, as you know. Uh, My interest is to exegete and exposit the Word of God so that our church will develop a greater and greater biblical worldview so that you will have a proper biblical understanding of what Scripture teaches, uh, not so that the church will grow, but so that your spiritual life will grow and so that your home will be strengthened and uh, so that your marriage will be blessed. That is the aim here. Uh, That is the purpose. No ulterior motive, just the motive being very explicitly Christian maturity uh, in every area of our lives. So why don't we go to the Lord in prayer, ask him to bless our time together uh, in this passage, and we will begin. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we cannot pray for something more important in the Christian life and especially in the context of a domestic life than our marriage. And so we humbly come before you now and we petition you to strengthen us, to give us the grace that we need in order to live out a life that glorifies you, that honors your word, that exalts Christ in the midst of the most important earthly relationship we will ever have. Namely, that of a husband and wife in the context of holy marriage. And Lord, we pray that you would illuminate our minds to what is good and right and what is fitting in your eyes for your children who are married. We pray, God, that you would uh, rid us of any idolatrous pre presuppositions or any preconceived notions that we have picked up from our surrounding, anything that is rooted and motivated by the flesh or the world or the devil. May you transform our mind, renew us according to your word, transform us so that we live in accordance with what is pleasing to you and not with what is in popular culture or what is seemingly acceptable in the sight of others. We want to be pleasing in your sight. And so, God, we pray for strength and grace as we come before you as imperfect husbands, imperfect wives, imperfect parents, needing so desperately your grace, God. And I pray that you would give us that heart 
that you would break down our hard hearts, that you would tear away the callous, that you would tear away the numbness that we may have regarding this issue. So many have given up on seeking to excel as a biblical wife, a biblical husband, a biblical father or mother and son or daughter. We pray, God, that you would revive our hearts according to the way so that we may live pleasing in your sight. And Father, we pray especially a blessing over our homes because that is the hub and the central focus of our lives in our families. We pray that you would reign supreme in our home, that your lordship would be known, that it would be celebrated, and that it would be humbly obeyed and submitted to by each and every one of us, God. May our houses truly, may our homes be a beacon, an embassy of your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to focus on what I have detected here in Ephesians to be a series of metaphors or analogies, what I want to call analogies in Ephesians chapter 5. I want to take opportunity to look at uh, two of them uh, today and, Lord willing, next week, dealing with uh, the first analogy being that of the wife and the church, the second analogy being that of the husband and Christ, and then hopefully... uh, Lord willing, as we look at the husband's role, that we will also look at the way he finishes this passage, talking about a covenant and also talking uh, about uh, the way that we relate to the church as a collective corporate entity, which is marriage. There really is no better text to go to, and so the minute I sort of made the determination that I was going to preach on marriage, I knew I was going to be in Ephesians. Because uh, why would you go anywhere else? I mean, Paul gives it to us all right here. And so my prayer for us is, uh, you know, sort of like what I prayed. I pray that that our hearts would be humbled, that we would uh, lower our pride, that we would uh, open our ears, open our hearts, subdue our minds, and bring ourselves humbly under the Word of God, the wisdom of God uh, for our marriage. And that whatever the status quo has been thus far in your marriage, that you are willing to receive direction and instruction, and that you are willing to grow in respect to what Scripture teaches that marriage is. And so I really, really hope that we gain a biblical worldview regarding marriage. And so hopefully this will all unfold as we look at um, what Paul here gives by way of exposition in this book. Now, you know this book. We've talked about this book numerous times. We looked at uh, practical theology, and we used Ephesians to kind of structure our practical theology. And you remember back then that the book of Ephesians is very simple to remember what the book of Ephesians is about, because there's two main sections. Now, part one is chapters one to three, and that is known as the, the, the doctrinal or the indicative part of the Letter, the indicative, basically telling us what is, what is, and what is the reality, what is the truth. The truth is that we have been united to Christ. The truth is that we have been uh, chosen, we have been predestined, we have been adopted, we have been put in union with Jesus. Uh, The truth is that we are God's own inheritance in the saints. All of the things Ephesians talks about. Chapter 4 to 6 
chapters 4 to 6 in Ephesians, is what is also known as the imperative part of the letter. This is, this is the part of the letter that tells us what ought to be. What, in light of the reality of what is, that's sort of being forming the foundation of the Christian life. What is the Christian life to look like in light of those truths? Uh, that's why the book of Ephesians is so uh, practical and so useful. And um, it really should be so precious to every one of us because it really structures, it gives a total structure for the Christian life in light of these indicatives and imperatives in the letter. And so we're looking at here uh, Paul's uh, imper- or his uh, uh, imperative section, which began not with marriage, but if you remember going all the way to chapter 4, it begins with ecclesiology. It doesn't begin in the home. He doesn't begin with the domestic duties of husband and wife. He begins with the duties of church members. Uh, that's verses 1 all the way down to verse 6. Now, the reason I point that out is because, unlike so many sermons that are crafted uh, around the subject of marriage, it's sort of like a message for everyone. It's sort of like advertise it on the sign in the street, put a banner out, put an article out. We're going to be covering how to have a better marriage. Come on in. Hopefully you'll get some meaningful advice. Hopefully, you know, you stop fighting like cats and dogs. Hopefully your marriage will uh, sort of, uh, you know, um, it will benefit from some of the lessons you're being taught here. The reason why we can't do that is because in Paul's mind, the context in which Paul is delineating the theology of marriage is in the church. And Paul does not write to random people uh, in a random situation uh, surrounding random issues. No, 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 no. Paul is a churchman. And in his worldview, he does not think outside of the church. That, we have, that has to be firmly grasped, right? That this is not sort of just advice for the masses. Now, under the doctrine of common grace, certainly anytime anyone adopts Pauline's principles for how to have a good marriage, expect there to be some benefits, Of course, because you're piggybacking on biblical principles which should and will, by necessity, result in a certain level of order in any marriage. But I just want to point that out, that for Paul, in his mind, the marriage he's really concerned with is the marriage at Ephesus, the the marriages in the church of Ephesus. That's what he's really concerned with. And so the way that a biblical worldview works is that you're a Christian, you are a member of a church, you have a pastor, you have church members, right? You operate in that worldview, and then your marriage is lived out in that context. Same thing with parenting. It's lived out in the context of the local church, your life in the church as part of God's household, Um, That has to be the most seminal issue of all. But as he gets to talking about the whole congregation, notice how he begins the whole subject of talking about husbands and wives. Look at um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. This is important because what comes before principles for a biblical uh, marriage is a principle of discipleship. It's the principle of fellowship. It's Christ. 
It's the, it's the life of Christ in the, in the life of the believer. And that's why he says in verse 21 at the end there, he says, and, and he says to the whole church, be subject one to another in the fear of Christ. And so the conduct that he's concerned with, you know, it begins with your identity as a Christian. We're not looking to clean the outside of the cup here. Uh, this is people that have a, a, a relationship with, with, with Christ, that are loving uh, God, that are loving uh, the brethren. That's the context that he's so concerned with. Now, today, let me just give you um, sort of a preface here. I'm only focusing on verses 22 to 24. That means you ladies are, are going to get your own message today. And during the message, don't be elbowing your husband because he gets it next week. Okay? So don't think I'm going to neglect the role of the husband. We're going to leave that for next week. But this week I just thought there's so much here just for wives and their instruction and, and that, that is so incredibly essential uh, for your growth as a Christian. We can't just skip over this. We've got to go systematically through this as uh, the apostle does. But, but we're going to talk about what biblical submission is. But before we do that, why don't, why don't we look at this verse and just read it quickly. Verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives, or yeah, the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. And so, as we begin to look at this, First thing we should deal with is, what is biblical submission not, or what biblical submission is not? Before we get into all the things that it is, I think it would be good for us to imagine, you know, uh, or, or, or at least to understand, what, when we say the word submission, I mean, talk about, I mean, you can't even do a wedding today and use the word submission without getting 20 dirty looks coming back at you. Trust me, it happens to me all the time. But this is what God reveals in his word and so we better understand what it is and what it isn't and to start with what it's not it's it's not at all distinguishing between the value of men and women Uh, biblical submission does not at all tell us that women are less valuable than men in any way and to any capacity no in fact biblically you know this we are both created in god's image genesis chapter one We are both redeemed with the same precious blood of Jesus, 1 Peter chapter 1. And both of us have the same standing before God in justification. Both of us are part of God's church and God's household as adopted sons and daughters of God. We are all, we are both men and women, husband and wife, on equal footing around God's uh, or in, in God's church and around the cross, as it were. Both of us are God's own redemptive inheritance. And therefore, this is why the Apostle Paul can say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is no distinction between male and female, Jew and Gentile, etc., etc. So it's not an ontological difference that we're going to be talking about in terms of a, a, a wife and a husband. We both have the same worth. The other thing is that biblical submission is not at all a call for a wife to tolerate sin. Uh, this is really important. A godly wife has no obligation whatsoever 
to tolerate sin in her husband. Um, it's not a calling for her to be a spiritual doormat either. It's not like what she's being called to is to subject herself to any sort of spiritual abuse, uh, to become some sort of verbal or physical, definitely not physical or emotional punching bag. No, ladies, let me tell you just, you know, by way of introduction here, that not only are you not subject to that, but if you are subject to that, you should confront it immediately. Uh, you should not tolerate sin at all in your spouse. You know, obviously, as you grow in degree, you grow in the degree of confrontation of sin, okay? We're not talking about your husband, you know, had an attitude today and that, that you know, you have to go and call the police on him, okay? But we are talking about that as the sin increases, so should the response of the wife that disagrees with the behavior. So this is not, to submit to your husband does not mean that you allow him to coerce you to tolerate sin in his life. Absolutely not. And when there's any abuse of any kind going on, a woman should confront it immediately and address it immediately and seek whatever kind of help is necessary for that issue immediately. You should go to counsel. Go to your church if you need to. Go to your pastor. And if you need to, go to the cops. Listen, if any husband in this church lays a hand on his spouse, on his wife, you call the cops and throw his, lo- his lousy rear end in jail, okay? That's what he deserves, right? The Bible says the rod is for the back of a fool. If you want to be so foolish as to physically mistreat your spouse, uh, I think you should go to jail. Uh, I don't think it's time for prayer. Uh, I think it's time for you to understand how holy and righteous God really is and that his ministers of judgment will deal with you, inst- you know, exactly, uh, I, I, we, don't, we don't, in the name of piety, say, well, you know, yes, my husband beats me, but we keep that under the rug because, you know, we, we try to, we try to, I try to honor my husband. No, that's not honoring your husband. That's dishonoring your husband. That is letting him get away with sin that he should be held accountable to. So you see, it's important for us to understand what is God calling us to do in terms of biblical submission for wives, and what is he not calling us to do? He is not calling you to tolerate that kind of behavior. But submission is a glorious thing, and it doesn't matter what the culture says or what uh, examples you may have had in the past or preconceived notions that you've had. A biblical submission is that which glorifies God, and because it glorifies God, it should delight the heart of the believer. And let me just give you, um, let me just give you three points here on submission. So what it is not versus what it is. And I know that with a message like this, I could die the death of a thousand qualifications, which I won't. So uh, it's okay if I, uh, if I engage in, 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 in overgeneralization. Come and see me after the sermon, and I'll be glad to qualify any statements that I make. But because, the reason why is because the Apostle Paul just states it as a matter of fact. Uh, the first thing to note about biblical submission is that it's based on God's design. Look at the verse again. He says, Wise, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. And so right off the bat, what we learn in the context of marriage is that God in marriage is seeking to preserve male headship. 
uh, let's be honest. In our culture, our feminist, saturated culture that we live in, the, those words uh, uh, on any given you know, college campus around the nation, that's hate speech, what I just uttered. The idea that God is seeking to preserve male headship in the world, that is, that, that, that you would be, I'd be guilty of spiritually abusing my congregation just for saying that. But that is what the Bible teaches. Of course, you remember the Apostle Paul talks about the fact that Adam was created first and that Eve fell into transgression. You know that in Genesis chapter 1, Adam was created to be uh, uh, really God's representative on earth. He is called the Son of God. Uh, there's no question that in the Bible and in the church, God seeks to preserve male headship. Uh, this shouldn't surprise us. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, please. 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, because I think this is also important. This is an issue that I've gotten over and over and over throughout the years. As a matter of fact, I've gotten a lot of flack for this because of my position on this, but because I just say, well, that's what Paul says, you know, whether you like it or not. I'll give you an example. I was on a, I was on a talk show once or a, a, a podcast where a brother was interviewing me about the subject of women open air preaching. Well, I told him that what it does is it violates the principle right here in First Timothy, First Timothy chapter two. It's just not in keeping with what uh, Timothy reveals. Look at verse 9. says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold and pearls and costly garments, but rather by means of, of good works, as is proper for, God, for women making a claim to godliness. A, 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 a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. That's what I mean by those kind of phrases... It's like a shock to our culture that we would... I have college students that bring me this scripture right here all the time. They bring me this verse and tell me, you believe in this? And I tell them, of course I do. It's the word of God. What do you believe in? <laughs> Let's not go there. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And of course, what Paul is doing here is he's giving instructions for the way that the church ought to conduct itself. A woman should not have a platform to teach over other men, period. In Titus chapter 2, which we'll look at, women should be teaching other women. And that is good and right in the sight of God, just as good as right as this is in the sight of God. But in terms of the, the, the role that God has chosen for women, it is not for them to have the place of authority over men. It's that simple. Now, this doesn't mean, for example, I've given this example before, I've talked about a I talked about someone that came to me that was very passionate, a sister that was very, very passionate about uh, male headship and the biblical model, and she wanted to submit to it, and she had a high view of it. And she went on, she must have went on for, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, teaching me about feminism, the history of feminism, and how it's infected our educational system. And she pointed out all these verses to me about how it contradicts that. And I told her at the end of the conversation, I said, thank you so much for teaching me. She goes, oh, no. I said, that's not what Paul is talking about. We can have a fellowship conversation where you don't violate this passage, you see. And I actually uh, learned quite a bit from her in what she was teaching me. But that is not what Paul is talking about. What he's talking about there is in the context of a formal religious gathering. That same sister would have told me, hey, let's meet at Starbucks at this time, and I want to teach you the theology of... Okay. Now we're entering into approaching the, 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 the more of a formal 
uh, technical posture of the teacher and the student and or the disciple, and that is not, I think, in keeping with the spirit of what's going on here. But you see this everywhere in churches today. Women get to teach everywhere in churches today. They get to teach from, I mean, you know, I don't want to drop names, but you know what I mean. There's a lot of churches around here where women are given the ability to teach over men, let's say in the context of a Sunday school class, or let's say in the context of seminary. You have women professors teaching over men the Bible in seminaries and Bible colleges across the nation, and that is becoming more and more and more acceptable. Um, Hey, to his credit, Paige Patterson down here in Fort Worth, um, uh, the Baptist Theolog- uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, one of the only uh, presidents of a seminary who stood up and said no. Uh, that violates what Paul is saying here in Timothy. So, you know, I disagree with him on the sovereignty of God, but I agree with him on male headship. And so there are many things that are, you know, that are in Scripture that suggest to us that God's design is for men to be the head. And it's a temptation for me not to launch directly into that subject because I'm going I'm to tackle it more head-on, Lord willing, next week. The word submission is also very important. You go back to Ephesians. I want to show you that the Apostle Paul also was very careful in his words because the word submission is important. The Greek word is hupatasso. And hupatasso uh, speaks of a voluntary submitting yourself to one's authority. It is not the same Greek word that means obedience. Uh, you look at chapter 6 right here in Ephesians where it says, Children, obey your parents uh, in the Lord for this is right. That Greek word is different. That's hupakuo. Hupakuo and hupatasso are two different words. A wife is not expected to obey her husband the way a child obeys the parent. I got news for you, men. Your wife is not your child. Uh, You're not her parent, okay? We are fellow heirs, according to uh, Peter. So in however the dynamics work in the home, it is not that the husband is to be like a dictatorial, you know, mean-spirited parent just constantly sort of ordering and bossing his wife around like a child. That is not at all honoring, and that is not at all what the Bible is teaching here. A wife is not a man's child. She is his equal. She voluntarily lays down her rights in order to maintain God's order and his design for marriage. After all, that's exactly what Jesus did. He voluntarily laid aside his, his right, his, his glory, his authority, as it were, and came in, submiss- in submission like a servant to his father, even though they were equal. In the same way, women are to submit to their husbands knowing that that submission not only glorifies God, but that submission is voluntary, temporary, and it won't last forever. I mean, I got news for you. In heaven, there'll be no marriage, right? I think sometimes we have to remember that this is, like Piper says, a momentary marriage. We're only in this for a while. Some of you may be sitting there thinking, thank goodness. You know I got to throw those jokes out there. But I hope not. That's what this sermon is meant to do is hopefully we won't engage in that type of sarcasm. But you know what it is. Sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes it feels like that. Sometimes it feels like marriage can be a drudgery. Submission is a drudgery. And especially if you are married to somebody who does not obey the word of God. And we'll we'll get to that. But one day there will be no marriage. It is temporary. It is temporary. 
But it is God's design for this present age. And uh, maybe to understand that a little bit more, let's look at the second point, which is this, that submission is not only based on God's design, it is also based on God's redemption. Go back to Ephesians, and let's read that again. It says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord for, and then here's his explanation, which is interesting. The husband is the head of the wife, that's the design. And then it says, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Now, this necessarily goes into the role of the husband. That, if you would, the analogy, as it goes, is that he is the Savior of the body. Like, he is the Savior figure of the home. How does that work? Well, obviously, he's not speaking here in terms of anything that would deify your husband. That's not the analogy. Obviously, we're going here from the greater to the lesser. As Christ is technically the Savior, capital S, so is a husband to be a Savior, lowercase s, of his wife. Turn with me back to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, just to show you how that this dynamic is also applied to another role, which is the pastor. In a sense... The pastor is a savior. He is a savior of the body. And let me show you how that works. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. You there? Pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation, both for yourself and for those that hear you. In other words, what this is talking about is instrumentality. It's speaking of the function of the man. Uh, And notice Paul's high view of the man. He assumes, isn't it amazing that as the the Apostle Paul here gives a portrait of marriage, um, he's giving us the ideal. He is giving us what ought to be. He's giving us a high view of marriage. He understands that there are men in Ephesus who are abdicating their role as being biblical men and biblical husbands. He knows there are marriages in Ephesus who do not reflect the things that he's talking about here. He understands there's real problems. But you know what Paul is doing in Ephesus here? In Ephesians chapter 5, he is telling us what ought to be. And a wife should humbly submit to her husband, knowing that her husband plays a pivotal spiritual role in her life, or at least he ought to. As he leads her in Bible study, as it goes on to talk about washing her with the water of the Word, as he leads the home, leads the children in prayer, as he leads the family in family worship, guess what you are becoming as a husband? You are becoming the means to God's saving interest. That God wants to protect that home. God wants to sanctify that home. God wants to save that home. And He wants to use you as a tool to make that happen. Husbands are to shepherd their homes. It's that simple. I'll be honest with you. Over the past several years of just, you know, in pastoring and in engaging in so much uh, marriage counseling, and we'll get to this next week, but... It's been my personal observation over the years that the real problem in marriages, when I encounter problems in marriages, is not wives that won't submit, it's men that won't lead. By far, the ratio is not even close. It's mainly that men will not do what God calls them to do. 
It's not that, don't get me wrong, okay? Ladies, you're not off the hook, but what I'm saying is, if I had to give a percentage, it seems as if most of the problems in the marriage, in the home, is due to abdication. And uh, that's why it's so important that we, that we talk about that, you know? But um, when a husband is faithfully leading the home, and to whatever degree that that's happening, recognizing that your husband will never do this perfectly. He will always fail in his role as a shepherd. He will always fail. He will, he's not going to be, he's not going to be perfect in his attitude, his motive, his heart, in his zeal. But to whatever degree he allows you to see that in the home, submit to that leadership and you will be blessed. Submit to it with what level of reverence? As to the Lord. I think one of the big killers in marriage is sarcasm. Sarcasm. I mean, I am the married with children generation, you know, where, you know, there's, you know, Al Bundy on the couch, you know, and he spends his life just eating chips, watching TV, and scratching himself. You know what I mean? And everyone comes home, and, oh, there's a stupid old dad on the couch again. He's just a big bump on the log. Mom is running around his back doing who knows what. Kids come in totally undermining his authority. He's just a big old, he's the brunt of every joke. You know what I mean? I mean, think of the perversion that our culture is handing us there. Right? And people drink it in. No, no, no. Uh, Really, this should encourage a biblical, you know, whenever a husband, to whatever degree he leads his home, this should only encourage and incentivize the woman to want to submit to her husband, to want to enable the husband to do whatever it is that God is calling the husband to do, to spiritually encourage him to lead the home. Joyful submission to the will of God on this issue should only encourage a man, embolden a man. Make a man feel like a man to lead his home. Um, in, in, in terms of the priorities of biblical submission, turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, ladies. Endless volumes of ladies' books, women's books are written on this chapter. You know that. Titus 2 ministry. You can start any women's ministry in the church. You better call it Titus 2 ministry. We don't, so we're doomed. But it is, it is a Titus tomb, don't get me wrong. But this is a seminal passage. I mean, this is sort of the passage in terms of women and what they're called to do. Look at what beginning of verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. Now, older women there, I think here is referring to age, not just spiritual maturity. Because you can have a real young lady who could be the most spiritually mature among a group of ladies, and she could be the youngest one in there, okay? But I think here, again, in Paul's ideal, I think he is thinking of women older in age who are to be examples. And so he says they are to be reverent in their behavior. Notice that. Reverent. Uh, Reverent is the opposite of sarcasm. Reverent is that she is Dominated by a sense of the holy. It influences her everything that she does. Not a malicious gossip. The older you get, the less you should gossip. You shouldn't be enslaved to much wine. Now, maybe you'd be tempted to chuckle at that, like, 
older ladies in the church, you know, throwing one back every night. I mean, what is he saying here? Well, do you know that there are communities all around our city that are dedicated to making old people waste their lives away, right? So they go to some sort of retirement community where they can just golf their life away. They can go to the restaurant. They can go to the pools. They can go to the recreation center. They can watch TV. You know, can shoot pool. They can play backgammon or whatever. They can throw shoe horses or whatever. But it's all geared towards frivolous stuff. But Paul's worldview is completely different. A woman is not to spend her, her time enslaved to anything any substance. Wine is just one thing. He doesn't mean wine, but not other things. You know, cigarettes are fine. He doesn't even talk about, he doesn't even necessarily, uh, 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 I, I think in the theology of wine, it's not just drunkenness. Uh, of course, that's a sin. Of course, that is out of bounds. But as Paul tells us, we should not be enslaved to anything. There shouldn't be anything that we're enslaved to that we become neurotic about, that we become uh, addicted to. That's a word to all of us coffee drinkers, right? We can't get on our high hobby horse, self-righteous horse, so we don't drink wine, we just drink Starbucks. Trust me, I'm preaching to the choir. We can't be enslaved to any substance. But instead, they are to be teaching what is good. I would say the one would disqualify the other. If you are a woman that is enslaved to various things, it will easily erode and even disqualify your ability to be a teacher of good things so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands. You, you see, the, see the philosophy of mentorship there? Right? It is not that the woman, the older woman, has to be the most skilled theologian in the world. But what she does need to be, she needs to be a reverent, mature woman of God who has the zeal, the compassion, and the love, and the competency to mentor a younger woman in what? Calvinism? Well, maybe. Maybe the pastor should do that. Maybe an older woman should do this. Encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, watch this now, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Wow! That's amazing. I mean, if we can just follow that. Because, of course, each one of these presents its own challenge. I mean, each one of these things is challenging. And let me say that here, the Apostle Paul very clearly and without hesitation has delineated exactly what a woman's calling is to be domestically. See, women can be radically gifted at things much more than men in certain areas. You can be gifted to um, sing. You can be gifted in music. You can be gifted in evangelism. You know I have a list here. You can be gifted in business, administration, technology, arts, ministry, uh, mercy ministry. You can be gifted in leadership, mentoring, discipleship, anything. And, and, and all of those gifts need to be used to glorify God. But... When it comes to your primary calling as a wife, your primary calling is to love your husband and love your children. Now, that might seem like a massive downgrade for some of you. That might seem like, wow, gee, that's really extravagant. Love my husband, love my children. That's it? Don't you know what I can do with an Excel spreadsheet? 
Well, yeah, God knows that. But see, God is not about you. <laughs> he's, he's not about what you think you should excel at. But, you know, God is not a man-centered God. He's a God-centered God. And so what glorifies him the most is that you take all of your skills and hone in your calling at home. By the way, it's like this at, at times can be so challenging, right? I mean, think about it. And, you know, when I'm doing premarital counseling, which I've just got done doing a whole bunch of it. When I'm doing premarital counseling, one of the things I try to, uh, I try to uh, make people aware of is the reality of marriage that you're getting into. I mean, think of it. You have never taken care of another man before in your life, let's say. You don't know anything about take, raising children. You don't know anything about cooking or cleaning. You know, you grew up, mom did all that, <laughs> right? And you were able to just go and have fun. Well, this could be really challenging for a young woman entering the marriage and maybe entering motherhood, and we've got several of them in here, where it just hasn't come easy for you to cook, to clean, and to care for a family, and yet we are being told this is what a mature woman of God will do. Ladies, let me tell you something about homemaking, because did you catch that there in Titus? He says that one of the things women should teach is that women should be workers at home. Wow. In other words, that you take your domestic duties seriously. That you recognize that God gave you a home, and in doing that, He entrusted to you a ministry. Uh, you know, I, I really think that the ladies in our church, and every church, I'm not singling you out, but in all churches, take stock of your hospitality. What does it feel like to come over to your house? Ladies, I'm laying this at your feet. Yes, the husband, can, he can vacuum for you. Yes, he can take out the trash for you. But ultimately, you are the queen of your home, even as he is the king. And you need to be in your home in such a way that you take your calling serious to beautify your home, to prepare your home, to make your home a place that people want to go to, where hospitality can flourish. Clean the place up. Don't be sloppy in your home. Don't let the clothes build up, mount up. Keep the place clean. Sound like deep theology? This is deep theology. If we walk into your home and it's a complete mess, the Bible has a lot to say about being lazy, right? The Proverbs tell us don't be like the sluggard next door who lets the weeds grow up in his garden. That's hard work for some people. It's not easy work. Now, 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 complicate the matter. Sometimes life has a way of making the most simple things difficult. You have emotional problems going on. You have health problems going on. You have parental problems going on. One of the kids is going crazy. You have issues in the home. There's ice in the marriage, and God's command stands. You still must be a worker at home. Remember, don't forget, I haven't forgotten about the guys. So if you're feeling the hit right now, understand that the same thing is true for the men. I don't care what's going on in your home. Get up in the morning and go to work. Provide for your home. I don't care how you feel, right? I'll tell you this much, your boss doesn't care how you feel. You better show up. I don't care that you've had a bad night. It doesn't matter that you had a bad argument. It doesn't matter that you're depressed. Get up and go to work. 
In the same way, as a Proverbs 31 woman, you get up. You're not afraid of the snow. You go out and do what you have to do. You strengthen your hands. You're like the merchant chips. You go out to the store, even if it's far, when you don't feel like it. You get food for your home. Wow. I'm telling you, we have underestimated the whole concept of biblical motherhood, womanhood, and what it means to be a wife. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Because there, Peter tells us about the extent of this submission. It's not just that you're having a bad day. It's not just that you know, trials come and go. It's not that your emotional state is not good. It's not that your health is not good. Maybe you're in a permanent situation that's hard. And I can't think of a harder situation than this right here. Verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your husbands, so that even if, they, even if, if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. I can't think of anything. It drives me crazy thinking about a woman being married to some man that doesn't obey the word of God, that is dismissive about her religion, has, is not reverent, is not holy, does not love her, does not, is not affectionate towards her. And you think of anything more maddening than having to put up with a man like that. And yet the Bible tells us, maintain a chaste and respectful behavior. You know how I start my premarital counseling? I can call one of the couples up here to tell you, but Julio can come up here. I start with 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ when everything else fails. Despite what your spouse does, do you have a walk with God? Because if that walk is strong, if your discipleship is secure, if you are authentically following Christ in the secret place of your heart where no one sees, then you will win the battle. But if you're doing it only because circumstance is good and you're doing it for eye service so that other people see it, you will never make it. You have to authentically love the Lord. You have to be able to say with Job, though he slay me, I will praise him. I don't know any other way to make it in that context. The final thing is submission is based not just on God's design. Um, It's not just based on his redemption, but it's also based on his sovereignty. And I say that because if we read the verse again, he says, As the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their own husbands, watch this, in everything. Now, we've already qualified that to mean not everything does not mean including sin, including that which contradicts the word of God. No, of course not. A, a, a godly woman has no obligation whatsoever to follow her husband into sin. None. Um, if I w- I'm trying to think if I was married to a man. Okay, keep going, keep going. And I, had to, and I had to submit to some sinful demands. I would want to say, you can kill me if you want. I'm not going to do that. You can leave, you can burn the house down. I don't care what you want to do. 
I will not violate my conscience before Almighty God. Do whatever you want to do. I will love you. And guess what? Tomorrow night, I'm going to have dinner ready for you. But I will not violate the Word of God for your sake. Sorry. That's a respectful way of saying it, right? Conviction. This is where Christ trumps even the most intimate earthly relationship that we could ever have, which is marriage. God is sovereign in marriage. And what that means first is that it's based on God's analogy between Christ and the church. God is the one who decreed the world of the elect, a particular body, a chosen bride to join to His Son. In the same way, God has ordained our marriage. We are in the marriage that we are in by the sovereignty of God. So we should not respond with grumbling and complaining at the providence of God, even if we're married to difficult spouses, even if they're unregenerate, God has put us there for His sovereign purpose. I'll never forget the story of good friends of mine. She was married to a good friend of mine, and, and um, uh, he wasn't saved at the time, and he was out partying every night. He'd come home drunk. Um, they had little kids, and every night she'd have a cooked meal ready for him, Everything was clean, meal was ready, hot, ready to go, not a word from her. And by God's grace, you have no guarantee of this happening in your marriage, but in this marriage it did. By God's grace, that guy got saved. And it was the, exactly what, what Peter says, it was the chaste conduct, the respectful behavior of the wife. And now they're on the mission field with nine children living in a Muslim country. Don't tell me God can't do exactly what he says he can do in his word. And so that's an incentive for any, any spouse in here married to any unregenerate spouse. Number one, never give up on them. Number two, follow the rules. Follow the directions that God's given you. By faith, entrust yourself to him. I'll come back to that because... That is so important. Second, under God's sovereignty, God has created this role for you. Um, the wife's role to be submissive to her husband is ordained by God. He has sovereignly, number one, he sovereignly made you a woman. Number two, he sovereignly called you for this purpose, for marriage, to submit to that man. To submit to your husband in everything. He is the potter. We are the clay. That doesn't just apply to election. That applies to everything. He ordains our steps. And therefore, we should not rebel against God's providence, but we should humbly submit to it, understanding that He is in charge and that it's His glory that is at stake, not our own. Not our own. Of course, this means that women should always allow their husbands to lead the home. To submit means that you prefer his leadership to yours. I'll never forget, somebody came up to me once in this church, husband, wife, and we were talking about something, and the issue of the King James only controversy stuff came up, King James onlyism. And she was standing there with her husband and her children, and she said, Well, for our family, uh, we are going to read the King James. I looked at him like, Huh? I mean, she made it very known that she calls the shots as far as which Bible the family is going to be reading and studying. 
It's like she completely usurped his role. And that happens on a much higher end. When women take matters in their own hands, they completely emasculate the man. Uh, In my opinion, when it says here that wives ought to be uh, uh, submissive to their husbands in everything, okay, putting sin off the table, of course, but in everything means, yeah, 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 in normal life stuff, the husband should be the one to make the decisions. Where are you going to live? What church are you going to go to? Uh, what standard of living are you pursuing? Um, uh, are you going to homeschool? Are you going to send your kids to school? That's something men should decide for their homes. How is the house going to run? Who's going to do what? These kind of questions are things that men should be allowed to decide. And women should humbly, lovingly, trustingly, by faith, allow their husbands to make those decisions. Now, of course, that has to be qualified with the fact that any godly husband is going to, cons- is going to, cons- is going to um, uh, uh, you know, co- collaborate with his spouse. You're always going to want your wife's advice. You're always going to want her to give you counsel. You're always going to want to do it with her next to you, to, with you, uh, you know, at your side. You're not going to want to do it in a dictatorial way. As if to say, you be quiet, let me do it. That's not biblical male leadership. It should be a loving relationship, a reverent relationship, and reverent leadership. Again, we'll get to the man's role later, but you see this all the time. Especially, I have one thing that I circled here. Homeschool. Uh, That's a hot-button issue. I've dealt with this numerous times in the church. It's real simple. Husband wants to homeschool the kids because he doesn't want to send them to the pagan school systems that... um, that now predominate America, period, uh, where your kid is going to be taught, you know, LGBTQ, Y, and Z, and all of that. And says, forget it. No way, I won't subject to my... I mean, I'll be honest with you. My daughter, by the grace of God, is going to be homeschooled. And I thank God that my wife is willing and up to the task and is going to do it. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm very passionate about homeschool. But whatever it is that your husband decides on that issue, your, your first... Your gut check reaction should be, okay, how can I be a helpmate here? How can I lovingly and humbly submit to the wishes of my husband in this issue? Um, we, Our former deacon, Scott and Lisa Beatty, they're a good example of this, and I don't think they would mind me sharing this, but you know, Lisa was a very high-powered CPA, making triple what he was making out there in the workforce, and when he said, you know, I want you to stay home with the kids, Wow. I mean, that's asking a very astute businesswoman to see motherhood as a higher calling than whatever career choice she may have in her mind. And she did that, and she humbly submitted to that. And it wasn't easy to do that, but she did it for God's glory. And I tell you what, I I think their marriage um, is better for it, of course. But that's with all of us. That's with any of us. When we follow God's advice, I want to end with one Scripture, First Peter chapter three. First Peter, so turn there with me, and just to, because I understand that there's a real fear factor at this point for a lot of women. You're being told to let go of control. You're being told to put the reins in somebody else's hands. When you get married, you are putting your life in your husband's hands. You are leaving and cleaving. You are saying, I am going to follow you. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I will go wherever you go. 
And that's not easy for a lot of ladies, especially if you have trust issues coming from some past experience, a past relationship, maybe the way that you were brought up. First Peter chapter 3 tells us this, gives us this glorious promise. For in this way, in the former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, talking about modesty, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Apparently, folks, even in the ancient Near Eastern history, that was still an incredible display of reverence for a a wife still to address Abraham as Lord, which was a very reverential way to address him, right? It wasn't deifying him, but it was definitely respecting his role and his calling to be over you. And you have become her children, that is Sarah. If you do what is right, watch this now, without being frightened by any fear. So whatever hesitation there is in your heart, Oh, I can't let him have control of the finances because he'll make a mess. Oh, I can't let him, you know, choose what happens with our kids and their education because he won't do it right. Don't be frightened by any fear. If you do what is right, if, this, if, if he's calling you to submit to something that is not contradicting the word of God, you have nothing to fear. God is going to take care of you. I'll tell you what. The role of a wife to submit to her husband demands one crucial component, faith. Let's pray. Father, who is sufficient for these things? We understand, Lord, the gravity of what marriage is, even if we have undermined it in the way that we've lived. We understand the standard that you give us is the right one. We understand that the example that we see oftentimes portrayed in culture, in society, in entertainment, maybe even in our own families, extended families, maybe even if we've adopted a standard lower than the one that you've given because that's the popular thing in church. But Lord, you have given us a standard, and that's the standard that we should all be aiming for. And so, God, would you, by your grace and for your glory, would you give us the grace to live out these biblical roles? I pray for the women in our church. Everything that we've looked at today, it's not just for them. It's not just for their husbands. It's not just for their home. That's the primary thing. But it also means they can be an example to others also means that they can show other younger women, even women their own age, how by faith to mostly glorify you in the context of marriage and in the roles that you've given us. And so, God, would you do that? Because oftentimes a church is no better than the maturity of its families. And so I pray that you would, by your grace, mature our homes, our, our marriages especially, so that our church would be mature in turn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.